I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We open today's show with clips of the increasingly cringy Kentonji Brown-Jackson hearings. Not only is she seemingly unwilling to defend her own record, she actually scolded Senator Hawley for asking her about her own decisions. What did she think this hearing was actually going to be about? It's getting more and more difficult to believe all women since we don't really know what a woman is. At least Kentonji Brown-Jackson doesn't. Still, this did not stop at least one prominent Republican from obnoxiously virtue signaling for minutes on end during the middle of the hearing. We play that insane and surreal clip as well. Plus, Cory Booker, always the thespian, led a cry fest during the hearing. Odd times. Also in the opening, a top Hollywood director is busted for hilarious green hypocrisy, and Florida continues to make fools out of woke corporations, plus so much more. And our guest today is Dr. Sebastian Gorka, a man who really does not need an introduction for this audience, and we have our caller of the day. All that to come, but first, a word from our sponsors. The main stuff that's going on in the uh, in Washington is looking at the Kentonji Brown uh, Jackson hearings. Then things that did not get much better for her yesterday uh, when Cory Booker wasn't talking. When Cory Booker was talking, then all of a sudden everyone was crying, which was really amazing. Um, Cory Booker started crying on her behalf about her historic nomination. Then she started crying. And uh, that must have been nice. That must have been a nice moment. Uh, Booker also attacked Republicans during the hearings, which was this was a very common refrain that we started to see, which was so absurd. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but uh, I will, let's play cut nine. Can we play uh, cut I, nine? I mean, this is a, a new new low. And what's especially surprising about this is it didn't happen last year. You were put on a court that I'm told is the considered like the second most powerful court in our land. And you were passed with bipartisan support. Nobody brought it up then. Did they not do their homework? Were they lax? Did they make a mistake? I wonder, as they ask you the question, do you regret? I wonder if they regret that, that they didn't bring that out. No. Why? Because it was an allegation that is meritless to the point of demagoguery. Uh, So he's talking about how some of the pretty tough line of questioning, it was pretty tough. Uh, that the Republicans have offered is not good because they were, I guess, were more polite when she was getting confirmed to lower court, um, the the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, but it's still amazing to hear this from a guy who said that Brett Kavanaugh was complicit in evil during the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, it feels like one that is perhaps a little bit too intense. Cory Booker said that Kavanaugh was disqualified whether he was innocent or guilty of the sexual misconduct allegations, which of course were totally false. So this guy was a at the first and it was at the forefront of the smearing of Brett Kavanaugh, but yet he is leading this charge, which was repeated over and over again that it was somehow the Republicans who were making. Uh, light of the situation with Ketanji Brown Jackson bringing up uh, the reasonable objections to a record. So I just found it amazing, the shamelessness. Uh, Cory Booker's shamelessness is, is unparalleled. But this is a common refrain that we saw throughout the establishment media. 
um, a clownish figure named Ellie Mistel, who's apparently a legal analyst for NBC, said the Republicans turned the Ka- turned uh, the Kavanaugh hearings into a circus. Not Democrats. The Republicans did that. So this is a big thing that they the, he, they they're even rejecting that the comparison is legitimate, which of course it is. Another uh, NBC analyst. Um, this is this this is yeah Jason Johnson. So the Republicans were flogging Kentonji Brown Jackson with crazy QAnon conspiracies. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg said that the Republicans were shameful and they had a nasty tone. Which there was a moment where Kentonji Brown Jackson did look a little bit upset with some of the intensity of the questions. Which is interesting also because people even on the right were critical of Brett Kavanaugh's attitude that he was, remember, I think it was Susan Collins in particular, that he got upset when he was getting falsely accused of uh, being a serial rapist and running a rape gang. They were mad that he uh, had lost his cool a couple points. So that's why this is all uh, theatrics. It's all performance at this point because we're still not seeing a uh, we're not seeing a chink in the armor when it comes to the amount of people who are going to vote for Jackson. Still, there's no indication that we're going to get even all of the Republicans, much less a Democrat in addition. But the conversation has shifted a little bit towards the sort of hypocritical how hypocritical it is, and the Democrats ramping up the hypocrisies. Uh, all right, so I'm going to play some audio of some of the key points so you get a sense of uh, for a long day of hearings, possible to keep up with all of it unless you really have a lot of time on your hands. Um, and I want to start with, let's play Lindsey Graham going back and forth with Jackson on starting with cut two, please. Senator, all I'm trying to explain is that our sentencing system the, the system that Congress has created, the system that the Sentencing Commission is the steward of, is a rational one. It's a system that is designed to help judges do justice in these terrible circumstances by eliminating unwarranted disparities, by ensuring that the most serious defendants get the longest periods of time. And when modes of commission of the crime change, such that in two seconds, someone can receive or distribute thousands of images. That's no longer a, and this is what the commission found in their studies, an indicator of a person who, relative to other people, has committed this crime in a more aggravated way. And so what we're trying to do is be rational in our dealing with some of the most horrible kinds of behavior. This is what our justice system is about. It's about judges making determinations in meting out penalties to people who have done terrible things. It is not rational to take the venue of choice of child pornographers, the computer that have 85 million images on it and not consider that feeding the beast. We're trying to get people to stop this crap. So when you troll on the internet and you pull down thousands of images of children from the internet, I want you to stop that. 
I want people to go to jail who do that because you're feeding the beast. We have a bill here, the Earned Act, that would allow the victims who are on the Internet over and over again to sue the, the media companies that provide these images. We have a fundamental dif differences of how you deter crime. I think the best way you deter crime when it comes to child pornography is you lower the boom on anybody who goes on the Internet and pulls out these images for their pleasure. And um, let's continue with the next one. Senator, every person in all of these uh, charts and documents I sent to jail because I know how serious this crime is. Every person I discussed the harm of these terrible, terrible images to the victims who are portrayed in them. I talked about what this crime does to the children who are being abused in these photos and on the other side of their terms of imprisonment, I ensured that they were facing lengthy periods of supervision and restrictions on their computer use so they could not do this sort of thing again. That's what Congress has required of judges, and that's what I did in every case. Uh, you always were under the recommendation of the prosecutor, many times the parole people. And to be honest with you, Judge, a uh, 32-year-old man who sent an image of his own 10-year-old daughter you substantially reduce the guy, uh, not only the guidelines, but the recommendation. And all I can say is that your view of how to deter child pornography is not my view. I think you're doing it wrong, and every judge who does what you're doing is making it easier for the children to be exploited. If you're on a computer right now looking at a kid in a sexually compromising situation and you get caught, I hope nobody gives you a break because you use the computer to note that she's getting angrier. You can see that, that she doesn't like this line of inquiry. Again, she, her explanations are not addressing the central criticism. The central criticism is that every time that she had the opportunity to follow or, uh, or reduce sentencing guidelines for people who are related to child sex crimes, in particular, um, these, uh, these child pornography rings, every time she recommended a lower sentence. So she's coming up with these rationales that does not address that key fact. It's a major fact. And she's saying that she I takes the issue seriously, is her point, but what's the evidence of how did she behave? She behaved by having a bleeding heart for the child sex offender to one degree or the next. Now, this is... I believe a major issue. I think, you know, if you turn on MSNBC, they'll say it's like a QAnon issue because now they marginalize, they make fun of people who are concerned about child sex crimes. So, uh, I don't know. I find this to be an effective line of inquiry. I don't think it moves Mitt Romney for whatever reason. Weird. But you never know about someone like Elisa Murkowski, who some of my uh, Alaska experts say is very sensitive about this stuff. So, perhaps she's thinking about it. But uh, soft sentencing on uh, pedophiles is a, 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 that is not a debate I was anticipating we'd be having here. And yet it has taken hold as the most important debate. 
So, and then this did continue. This seemed to be a place where the Republicans decided they would hammer. Let's play Josh Hawley, cut four. And you gave him, frankly, a slap on the wrist sentence of three months. Senator, Do you I regret it? I don't remember whether it was um, distribution or possession in it the was law. Both. Do you regret it? In, in the law, there are different uh, crimes that people commit Judge, in you gave this him area. three months. My question is, do you regret it or not? Senator, what I regret is that in a hearing about my qualifications to be a justice on the Supreme Court, we've spent a lot of time focusing on this small subset of my sentences, and I've tried to explain you regret that we're focusing time. on your cases i don't understand no 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 i'm Pause. I'm, I'm talking Pause. about the i fact mean that she 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 should be she this is where they should get out that old timey hook and uh the drag her off the stage Did you just follow what she just said she said that she regrets that they're talking about her record in her senate in her uh, conference her senate confirmation hearing for the united states supreme court really won the quotes of the year just there and we'll play it again just in case you miss exactly what she just said. She was asked if she regrets sentencing someone guilty of a child sex crime to only three months. Instead of saying no because that was the appropriate sentence and just defending herself, she says she regrets, she doesn't answer the question, says she regrets that Josh Hawley, how dare he ask her about her own record? It, it, see, that is not a person who is of the correct temperament to be on the Supreme Court, if you ask me. Just my take. I don't know if Mitt Romney cares. I don't know if John Tester cares or Kristen Cinema or Joe Manchin. Maybe they do. That's not a, a good temperament. When you're basically attacking the line of inquiry from the senator about your own record. Play that one again from the top, please. That you're talking and you gave him frankly a slap on the wrist sentence of three months senator Do you I regret it i don't remember whether it was um distribution or possession in it the was law both. do you regret it in in the law there are different uh crimes that people commit Judge, in you gave him area. three months my question is do you regret it or not senator what i regret is that in a hearing about my qualifications to be a justice on the Supreme Court, we've spent a lot of time focusing on this small subset of my sentences, and I've pause. tried to explain. So this is where, uh, it, again, if the stakes weren't so high, you'd have to laugh. It's one of the worst answers I've ever heard to any question, not just in a confirmation hearing. I mean, it sounds like something my three-year-old would say. Like, it, it, it literally sounds like something if Master Marlowe gets in trouble for hitting Master Marlowe Jr. Uh, and I say to Master Marlowe, do you regret hitting your brother? He's crying now. And he said, Senator, I mean, Dad, I regret that we have to talk about the fact that I just hit my brother. There's no other context where this would be acceptable. And this is the most important context for her to be able to explain her record because 
she's getting a lifetime appointment to the most important court in the history of the country and currently in our country. It should be played around the clock and every single journalist should be asking Romney and Murkowski and Collins and Cinema and Manchin what they think of this. So uh, let's see where this goes. Continue. You regret that Many we're focusing time. on your cases? I don't understand. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that you're talking about Child seven cases. very serious cases. I'm glad we agree on that. Don't you some, think some, some of which, some of which involve conduct that I sentenced people to 25, 30 years. Three months before. in this case, Judge. Do you regret it? You haven't answered my question yet. Senator, Do you regret the sentence? Senator, I would have to look at the circumstances what I'm telling you... You you know the circumstances. We discussed it for half an hour yesterday. There's a 55-page transcript, which I'm sure you've read. You lived it. Not, As you've not. emphasized to this committee over and over, you've lived it, right? You said that you've been through all of this. You've looked at all of the images. You're the one who's had to endure all of it. You gave him a three-month sentence. I just wonder if you regret it or if you stand by it. I mean, do you stand by that sentence? Senator, in every case, I followed what Congress authorized me to do in looking to the best of my ability at all of the various factors that apply, that constrain judges, that give us discretion, but also tell us how to sentence. And I ruled in every case uh, based agonizing. on all of the relevant factors. So you don't regret it? No one case, Senator, can stand in for a I'm not asking answer, answer the question. If you regret this sentence in this case, and it sounds like the answer Just is Just say no, you don't regret it. But I want to tell you I regret it. I regret that you gave him only three months. All right. It's a, it's a, why wouldn't you just say no? I don't regret it. She doesn't regret it. Just say no then. Defend your own record. It, it's, this is what I'm saying. She's not even helping herself. She's not even helping herself. It would have been a perfectly valid answer to say, no, I don't regret it given the nature of the case, given the guidelines that were in place. I understand your perspective, but given the amount of time I spent on the case, that seemed like the appropriate sentence. And then she can get into all the gobbledygook that she was trying to get into now. But did he just tell her not to give answers? This is not, this is not good. This is not an impressive person. This is a mediocrity. We, do, we deserve better than this as a country. We deserve not mediocre people to be in our Supreme Court. Oh, my goodness. Here's Patrick Leahy defending her from Republicans. Cut a eight, please. You had a Republican member who went way over the time allotted to him, uh, ignored the rules of the committee, badgered the nominee, would not even let her answer the questions. Uh, that, that I've never seen anything like that. I've been here 48 years. Here we have a highly respected and respectable nominee, and to be treated that way. I, I don't know what the motivation might be, or what political motivation it is, but to see the badgering of this woman uh, as she's trying to testify, I thought was outrageous. Yeah, so this is, again, the, the Republicans are the bad guys for asking about the record, especially after what we witnessed with the three Republican hearings in particular. Um, the Kavanaugh one, of course, comes to mind. 
All right, a couple other key ones I want to play. Here's Senator Cruz in exchange over trans rights. Cut five. So yesterday, uh, under under questioning from Senator Blackburn, uh, you told her that that you couldn't define what a woman is, uh, that you were not a biologist, which which I think you're the the only Supreme Court nominee in history who's been unable to answer the question, what is a woman? Uh, let me ask you as a Judge, how would you determine if a plaintiff had Article Three standing uh, to challenge a gender-based rule, regulation, policy uh, without being able to determine what a woman was? So, Senator, I know that I'm a woman. I know that um, Senator Blackburn is a woman. And the woman who I um, admire most in the world is in the room today, my mother, um, it sounded as though well, but, the but, question but, but was... Let me ask, under the modern leftist sensibilities, if if I decide right now that, that I'm a woman, um, then apparently I'm a woman. Does that mean that I would have Article Three standing to challenge a gender-based restriction? Senator, to the extent that you are asking me about um, who has the ability to bring lawsuits based on gender, those kinds of issues are working their way through the courts, and I'm not able to comment on them. Okay. If, if, if I can change my gender, if I can be a woman, and then an hour later, if I decide I'm not a woman anymore, I guess I would lose Article Three standing. Tell me, does that same principle apply to other protected characteristics? For example, I'm, I'm an Hispanic man. Could, could I decide I was an Asian man? Would, would I have the ability to be an Asian man and challenge Harvard's discrimination because I made that decision? Senator, I'm not able to answer your question. You're asking me about hypotheticals and... Um, well, I'm asking you how you would assess standing if I, if I came in and said, I have decided I identify as an Asian man. I would assess standing the way I assess other legal issues, which is to listen to the arguments made by the parties, consider the relevant precedents uh, and the constitutional principles involved and make a determination. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's it's a it's funny, but it's also not unreal because we have had the transracial people. The people like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who's identified as Native American her whole life, even though she's not. Of course, Rachel Dolezal, who was famously a 100% white woman who lived as a black woman. So it's not impossible. Ted Cruz could be transracial. Um, ben Sass seized on the opportunity, as he so often does, to virtue signal. Even though he's a Republican, he loves when he can distinguish himself from other Republicans by sucking up to... The left and he does that here right after Cruz. Uh, cut six, go. Before I move on, uh, just because we've had um, a number of members of this committee comment on cameras in the court, um, I've made my position on this clear a lot of times. But if, if I can give a tiny bit of um, friend of the court brief in advance, because I think it when, when you're on the court and you all continue to debate this issue, um, I think it should be a decision for the Supreme Court to make about whether or not there are cameras in the courtroom, uh, not a decision for the Article One branch to make for Article Three. But I think it's incredibly important for us to recognize, because I, I think I differ from a lot of my colleagues on this who are advocates for cameras in the courtroom. I get their position. Um, that transparency is a virtue. Transparency is a good thing. 
I also believe that pen and pad uh, can facilitate a whole heck of a lot of transparency just fine. And it's healthy for Americans to recognize the second and third and fourth order effects of cameras. A huge part of why this institution doesn't work well is because we have cameras everywhere. Um, cameras change human behavior. We know this. You don't have the same kinds of conversation over the oh dinner gosh. table uh, with your family when you're wrestling through issues uh, and apologizing for something and saying, I said this before, but maybe I should modify oh, what I said. I was my tone was jerky. My substance didn't doing? account for your position. Um, th there's a whole bunch of things that humans can do if they're not immediately mindful of some distant camera audience that they might be trying to create a soundbite for. And uh, Instagram can be useful for some small things, but for intellectual discourse, it is not a friend. Um, and I think we should recognize that the jackassery we often see around here um, is partly because of people mugging for short-term uh, camera opportunities. And it is definitely oh, um, a second, too. third, and fourth it's order effect jokes. that the court should think through um, before right, it has advocates in a, there. This is a Republican senator. This is We're talking about a permanent seat in the Supreme Court. I think you get a 30-minute round, you get a 20-minute round. So you get like 50 minutes total between you and the person you're questioning. Which, you know, that's a, a slightly more than one hour that we have together in talk radio. Um, it's a it kind of roughly an hour in terms of the content we have. Like compare that, we get an hour of radio to what Ben Sass gets to do with this person who would have a permanent spot, lifetime Supreme Court seat. And he's spending two and a half minutes talking about the jackassery, presumably of Ted Cruz. I mean, you have to guess that that's what he's talking about. Because he doesn't like Ted Cruz's line of questioning. And give us a lecture on cameras, how cameras are bad. And we should have less transparency about what's going on in these uh, hearings. Oh, what a disappointment that guy turned out to be. He ran as a kind of an anti-establishment reformer. And then he just became a... Um, this is a total, total knucklehead, Ben Sass. So I hope he gets primaried one of these days. I don't think it's going to happen, sadly. I think he's going to get to do what he wants to do. Um, from everything I know about politics in, in Nebraska. But uh, he thinks the problem here, again, is Ted Cruz, I guess. We don't know for sure because he won't say it. But I guess that's his point. He doesn't want the, the jackassery of the court to be on camera. Okay. Couple other things I will point out uh, that are in the news. Um, it's the the something that's happening in Afghanistan is we're slowly seeing more and more people recognize the Afghanistan government as legitimate, uh, and while more countries are are doing that, uh, Afghan the Taliban had said that they would promise that um, uh, girls would be allowed to have a full. Uh, career in school and they would not be blocked from entering classrooms and yet girls have been blocked from entering classrooms so if you're over the sixth the sixth grade and you're in afghanistan and you're a girl you cannot go to school so uh joe biden of course failed in keeping the afghanistan um uh, the taliban government from taking over afghanistan we barely have time to address these things because we are you know obsessed with uh, other other things that it feel like the media wants to talk about, like Ukraine twenty four seven, and whether or not Ben Sass thinks Ted Cruz is a jackass. So, but just know that that is a major failure. America went to war for twenty years, and uh, what replaced America's presence is the Taliban, who's banning girls from school. 
So I'm looking forward to all of the human rights advocates on the left to acknowledge this fact and to stand up on behalf of these girls can't go to school in Afghanistan. Especially the people who want to talk nonstop about Ukraine. Um, the Don't Look Up director, a guy named Adam McKay, who used to work closely with Will Ferrell, kind of Will Ferrell's partner, though I think they had a, they had a falling out. Don't Look Up is a movie about climate change that came out that was pretty popular. And even though he's a big climate change warrior, he's been busted for maintaining a second home in Ireland. So not only does he have a couple homes, and not only has he been a, a speaker at climate change rallies, he of course has to fly to Ireland from Los Angeles, 10,000 mile trip to use his second home. So what do you think his, uh, what do you think his carbon footprint is? Guys making movies about climate change. Remember, we only have like eight years, or we're down to seven years before climate change kills us all. But he picks a second home halfway around the world. Now, I think it's a cool idea to have a second home in Ireland. I, I'm going to pursue that myself. But I'm not making movies lecturing the public on climate change. That's what he does. The wokeness of Hollywood continues. Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN, Pixar, Disney Parks are all protesting the anti-grooming laws in Florida. So corporate America continues to fight against the don't groom kids law, which people are calling the don't say gay law, it has nothing to do with saying gay or not saying gay. Again, it's that you can't indoctrinate uh, students into the LGBTQIA+, literally what they're saying. I'm not making that up. LGBTQIA+. I, of course, add ampersand, apostrophe, pregnant man emoji to that list in the number two. But all of these woke corporations are very upset that the, uh, the Florida wants to ban indoctrinating kids into the cult of LGBTQ plus IA until the fourth grade. You can do it. You just can't do it until the fourth grade. And this is an outrage to all of those companies, many of which you use, Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN, Pixar, Disney Parks. All of them are on team bad guy. Airlines are begging Joe Biden to drop mask mandates and testing requirements for travelers. It, we all know from the early stage of the pandemic, one of the relatively safer places to be on the plane uh, in the world is on planes. Why? Because filtration system is so good that people are able to circulate the air so well that there weren't massive outbreaks, as far as we know, on a plane. And... I don't know if the mask helped on the planes. One of the places where I took the mask seriously, at least at the beginning, was on the planes. But it seems like the filtration system and the way that they circulate air, which is always state-of-the-art, is so good, it kept people safe. But again, they're the last bastion of the mask theater. And the airlines are finally starting to ask. But I was wondering, why didn't they ask two years ago when it started to become clear that it was not necessary? Or maybe you could get a negative test and then you wouldn't have to wear one. But still, it wasn't done. So the theater is at its height when it, we're in the airlines or the airports. Um, and of course, as I've been noting, the coronavirus cases are not good. A friend of mine just announced uh, to me yesterday that she's got the virus. And she's one of a group of people that's over 50% of what cases were last year. And the death toll is exactly what it was last year at this time. So... Well, why the airplane speaking up now? We knew the science two years ago, and the coronavirus isn't technically better now. 
So interesting. And uh, hopefully people continue down the path towards freedom here, which is what we're on. And last but not least, Russia says the U.S. should not be uh, a refuge for the senile as a dig on Joe Biden. I don't think it matters that much that they're saying that, but I do think it's kind of interesting that uh, Joe Biden, um, uh, the <laughs> Joe Biden, is being called senile from people around the world. It's just not a great look for the country. We have a lot of mediocre people here: Kentonji Brown Jackson, Joe Biden, Adam McKay, Ben Sass. We're represented by the mediocre now. It's a problem. It's supposed to be an exceptional country. Not necessarily seeing the evidence right now. Great segment today with Dr. Sebastian Gorka, who is well known to this audience as the former national security editor for Breitbart News and an advisor to the president, as well as a talk radio host in his own right. We touch on Americans making life easier for Chinese companies to operate here in the States, the alarming history of NATO's demise and the latest misinformation about Ukraine and why Kentonji Brown Jackson is unworthy of a single Republican vote in this Supreme Court confirmation. Let's hear it. Dr. G, great to have you on the show and really a lot to get to, but I do want to get your take uh, before we turn overseas. I, I do want to get your take on the Supreme Court uh, hearings, confirmation hearings. And you're someone who uh, is really solid at keeping Republicans accountable, make sure that they do what they can to fight for the people. Uh, I've been particularly unimpressed, even less impressed than I figured I would with Kentonji Brown Jackson. I, I want to get your kind of 30,000 foot take and um, assess the Republicans' role in this nomination. Um, pretty disgraceful. Uh, a couple of, um, you know, there's, there's one senator who can come on my show whenever she wants, and that's Marsha Blackburn. She was superb. But but overall, um, this is a nominee that no Republican with the letter R behind their name should vote for, because I keep hearing how smart she is. I'm not even convinced of that. And then on key issues that disqualify her based upon her answers, they don't press home the offensive. If, if you know, she doesn't know what a woman is, she's under oath. She's in a nomination hearing where she swore to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, and she doesn't know what a woman is. Well, in that case, she shouldn't be allowed in any part of the judiciary. She shouldn't even be allowed to walk my dog. She knows what a woman is. She's either lying or she's a coward because she's afraid of the cancel culture fascists out there. So the idea that you know we are on the cusp of potentially uh, destroying Roe v. Wade, and she doesn't have an opinion or doesn't know when life starts, when it is a foundational aspect of our constitutional order and our founding documents that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but she doesn't know when the life begins. You know, when, when she answered, I don't know what a woman is, the next question should have been, in that case, tell us how many genders there are, which is, you know, an idea that was floated by, by Chris Plant yesterday morning, and I give him full credit. And then just watch her squirm when she can't give the answer as to how many genders there are. So on the whole, I'm not impressed. 
and not one Republican should, should vote for this person because she's an ideologue. She was an activist volunteer on the Obama campaign. Can you imagine if any any Republican member of the Supreme Court had been an active member on a presidential campaign, Alex? Oh, it's such a good point. And it's one where it feels like there's so many of these. I'm actually almost... Uh, I'm actually almost overwhelmed with it. I was expecting at least some intelligent answers because there have been liberal justices that can at least kind of sell sell you. She's not even right. selling us on what she stands for. She's offering no judicial philosophy, so we're left to kind of draw our own conclusions. And I can't think of a single issue, Dr. G, where she's even, even in line uh, with your standard woke leftist Democrat. She seems to be to the left of all of them, if anything. Well, absolutely. When, when we have that quote, I think it was Cruz that pulled up her quote from the University of Chicago a couple of years ago where she gives a, a speech about how cool it is to be a federal judge because my job combines you know, the theory and the practice of sentencing and also critical race theory. When you have a federal judge say that critical race theory, which says that white people are always oppressors and black people are always victims, is part of her judicial philosophy. But magically, once she gets to the floor of the Senate, she forgets what her judicial philosophy is. This is a dissembler. This is a liar. This is a person who has, you know, Alex, has a very, very strong judicial philosophy, but she doesn't want to admit it right now because she knows that the world, the average American, would be horrified. This is where I do believe we've got a uh, the, the fact that she got busted lying about critical race theory, acting like she didn't know it, even though she gave a speech talking about it. Um, she says that she doesn't know the definition of what a woman is, which is, again, either she's lying or she's an idiot. It's one or the other. So uh, neither of those are good. Uh, neither explanation is good for her candidacy here. I don't see Dr. G. And there's just a handful of other issues where she's displayed some significant inconsistencies where she said she was kind of unaware of Arabella. This was an un unbelievable moment. We, of course, we've reported yeah. on Arabella, which is this dark money group. But she corrected this, the pronunciation of it. Lindsey Graham uh, mispronounced it. She pronounced it correctly and said she hadn't heard of it. That's an unbelievable moment. It's an amazing moment. And not well, to mention it, she it, lost her. Yeah, go ahead. No, it is. It, it, you know, you, you've got to be you know, subtle and ob observant. But, but let's forget all of these things. Let's forget CRT, the fact that she's a woman, but she doesn't know what a woman is uh, or, yeah. or where, where life begins. Let's talk about child pornography, okay? This is the abuse of children, and it is photographed. And she thinks because the law was made before the Internet, the fact that it is more accessible in the age of the Internet means you should have a lighter sentence it should be the reverse the fact that you're propagating more images of children being sexually abused leads to the lowest sentence possible that that is her philosophy we, we don't need another discussion she's on the side of the pedophiles 
she has sympathy for people who are propagating child pornography. That in and of itself should disqualify her from ever being considered for any court in the land, let alone the Supreme Court. Dr. G, though, she would be the first powerful person in the Washington area to be somewhat sympathetic to pedophiles, though. I mean, if that's uh, this would be the first one. There hasn't been a single other one, as far as we know, forever. And and according to what is it, NBC or CBS, she'd be the first black justice as well. Uh, Dr. G, the current president is heading to Europe and he is going to speak to some people. I'm guessing he'll speak to some NATO types and some other globalist types. I don't know what's really on his agenda, what he hopes to accomplish. Um, do you see what he's going to be doing? And if so, what are you keeping your eye on? Lots of hot air and um, doing things that uh, demonstrate he's afraid of Vladimir Putin. So um, for those who are not familiar, I, I broke my... Uh, I started my career on uh, on NATO issues back in the 90s. I actually served in the Hungarian Defense Ministry, helping that nation uh, join the alliance. And then I was a, a NATO fellow at the national at the uh, NATO Defense College in Rome. So I, I'm kind of I'm embarrassed to be formally associated with this organization because it has wow. an amazing reputation as the most successful military alliance of the modern age. It really, you know, won the Cold War under the leadership of, of, of Reagan and, and Thatcher. And, and now we have what? Uh, we're a month into the war and they're holding a summit a month into the war, you know, day one, the day the day the tanks rolled, the Supreme Allied Headquarters in Mons should have had an emergency meeting and the North Atlantic Council uh, should have met that later that day. It, it's a joke. It's a travesty. And, and, you know, we need to be clear that this is the most significant conflict on the Eurasian landmass since 1945. And, and if I may, if you'll indulge me, Alex, yeah, sure. I, I've had it. I, I've had it with people who say they're conservatives who come out with, you know, triple wrapped tinfoil hats on their heads saying Putin's the good guy, we're the aggressors, and that Vladimir Zelensky is some puppet of the WEF. Can I send you a couple of photographs of, of Vladimir Putin at the World Economic Forum year after year after year? And I remember a time when any conservative, when every conservative hated all KGB colonels. The idea that a nation with nuclear weapons that spans 11 time zones was aggressed by Ukraine is utter sheer insanity, and it has to stop. We're not saying Ukraine is perfect, but even from the point of sheer masculinity and the founding principles of this nation, the idea that Biden offered Zelensky an evacuation aircraft, and Zelensky said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Every real conservative should be standing with a man who is standing for the sovereignty of his nation. So guys, take off the tinfoil hats and stand with a nation that is now fighting its 1776. Uh, can I ask you, uh, Doctor G, about NATO in general and your yeah. take on on their the, their brand in general? And uh, it does feel like it's really faltered since I've been paying attention to geopolitical issues. Uh, I assume you agree. And if so, what is the path forward for NATO, or is there no path forward for NATO? Do we need to start looking towards an alternative uh, way to well, sort of organize things? 
Yeah, no, we, 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 there's no, you know, we, we shouldn't build from scratch. We, we should be honest about what it was and what happened to it. So, yes, to quote, to quote a British Air Commodore speaking to me in the 1990s as a Brit, he said, look, at the end of the day, the forces arrayed in Europe, the European forces in the context of World War Three were a speed bump for the, the second uh, Russian army. Um, the only reason NATO functioned is because of, because of Article 5 and the American commitment to provide a nuclear umbrella. Because we did that, uh, the European nations didn't take their defense seriously, except for the Brits and the French. Nobody else maintained expeditionary capabilities. And in the 1990s, it just got worse than that. Um, today, the only serious nations in the alliance are those who really um, understand the threat of Russia. The, the new members, such as Hungary, yeah. such as Poland, such as the Baltic states, and the other countries who have been assiduously neutral for decades and are now saying, hey, we want to join Sweden and Finland, Finland that knows a lot about fighting Russians on their territory. When Finland says we are now considering joining NATO, you have to ask, where is the leadership from the Western members? It's not coming from France. You know, it's not coming from Germany that's playing footsie under the table with Moscow. And it's not coming from this White House. President Trump warned everyone, you can't be buying your energy from Russia. And if you are a serious member of NATO, you've got to meet the agreed 2% of GDP to defense expenditure that NATO had set for itself. If you don't, you're not a serious nation. Now they're finally waking up to it, but it's a little late. So as to the future, you know, until we get President Trump back in the White House, I think the vacuum will be filled, hopefully, by those nations that get it. Serious Christian anti-communist nations like Poland hopefully will step up and, and fill that gap. Um, and also, it's interesting to note that Trump, I think, did a pretty effective job of noting how America was really getting rolled by NATO. And it did seem like we've had some course correction. But again, sometimes these things, they're, they're, it takes more than, you know, one guy and one policy to fix it. Well, look, I mean, I've used the, the footage on, on, on my, my daily show, I don't know how many times since, since the war erupted, this, the speech that the president gave. At the United Nations in, in, in 2018, where he said, you've got to get serious about your defense. You've got to stop pandering to Moscow. You've got to stop buying their energy. And the camera that's looking at the president pans to the German delegation, and they're tittering, and they're laughing. Well, guess what? They're not tittering and laughing right now, but back in the 90s, when the then-Chancellor Gerhard Schröder left the chancellery, and became the, the, the CEO of Gazprom in Russia. I mean, that tells you everything. That's the German chancellor working for the biggest oil company and gas company in Russia under Putin. Um, Dr. G, there is a group of people on the online right who are concerned about some, something, some sort of, I guess, bio labs in Ukraine. Yeah. I don't see why this has anything to do with Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, I guess. I guess maybe their suggestion is there that Ukraine is making biological weapons used against Russians. Is that kind of what's being put out? I, I admit I did not get super invested in this. Uh, you know about right. this topic a lot better than I do. Can you explain this one to me? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, and let's remember Ukraine was the largest uh, segment, the largest republic inside the Soviet Union, Ukraine inherited not only nuclear weapons from the Red Army, it inherited a series of, of bio labs, all kinds of labs, some to do with agriculture and some to do with biological defense uh, research. When we promised them, we, America, the UK and Russia, that if they sacrificed, gave up their nuclear weapons back to Moscow, we would secure them and keep them safe. They still maintained control over the Soviet era bio labs. So very wisely, what did the then administration do? Said, okay, we don't want Ukrainian uh, bio researchers uh, who are now unemployed working for Iran or North Korea. Let's fund some of these sites, not only to stop that knowledge leaking out to other bad guys, but let's also have access to them so we can find out what the Soviets, what the Russians were doing in those labs. Because the 1972 Bioweapons Lab Treaty says expressly, offensive use of biological weapons is internationally illegal. But the research into defending yourself, like Fort Detrick here in America, the research into defending yourself from somebody else's biological weapons is allowed. And we did that for many, many years. Now, the logic of it was sound. Uh, the idea that is now being parroted by so-called conservatives, since Moscow is using it to justify an invasion, are we seriously saying that Ukraine was going to attack Russia that has nuclear weapons? Guys, stop the insanity, please. It is funny that there is a lot of overlap with the people who are mad that about the lack of WMD in Iraq that we went yes. to go get. <laughs> it's the same group. Well, look, look, on, on, one, on one side, I, I get the, I fully, fully, you know, understand and even, you know, ju- I find it justifiable to have skeptical approaches to all information sure. after COVID, after you know everything we've been through with the Mueller probe and everything else. Yes, yeah, skepticism is fine, but cynicism isn't. Because at the end of the day, to say everyone is lying is wrong. If you're a conservative, you believe in truth, and you believe that our God-given reason allows us to identify the truth. And to say asinine stuff like, well, George Soros is is supporting Ukraine and doesn't like Russia. Therefore, hang on a second. If George Soros says, I like cheeseburgers, does that make cheeseburgers a part of the Soros plot to take over the world? Let's have a little bit of critical thinking. A former KGB colonel invaded an independent country the hospitals are being bombed and Ukrainians are fighting for their freedom. That shouldn't be a tough thing for conservatives to understand which side they should be on. Um, Dr. G, I want to ask you in the two minutes we have remaining about the U.S. judge ending a probation for China's ZTE telecom giant. It's, it's again, we have to be ever diligent and vigilant about some of the true threats to our country. Uh, what is your thoughts on this? Well, look, this remains, and in my second book, I I give you chapter and verse of why we fight that the the, the only peer enemy we face, despite the war in Ukraine, is China. That is the one nation that has the will and the capacity to replace America, and we have to take it seriously. And to have a judge, to have ZTE, 
skirt sanctions with Iran, sell Iran tens of millions of dollars of worth of American tech to skirt the sanctions. And now, a couple of years later, after paying a massive fine to have that lifted, that sanction against the company lifted is sheer insanity. We need to wake up. Russia is losing this war. 15,000 killed in four weeks is the same amount they lost in 10 years in Afghanistan. So Putin is on the ropes. China is the number one threat. And we have judges in this country who are making it easier for China to not just skirt the international sanctions regime, but to undermine this nation. Wake up, America. Read why we fight Listen to what the president has been saying for 30 years about China, and let's get him back in the White House. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, America First, is the show every afternoon. The Salem Station is also available on podcasts and uh, the Gorka Reality Check on Sundays. And, of course, any book that is written by Dr. G is going to be worth your time. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk to you next week. God bless you and the listeners. Thanks, Alex. Caller of the day today is Kelsey from Iowa, who was part of a long discussion that took place on the live show on Sirius XM Patriot 125, which airs every morning, 6 a.m., and on the SXM app, where we discussed the student loan racket and how some efforts to that are still always on the march from the left to try to relieve student loans which would be a huge handout to the universities and to uh, Democrat voters, et cetera, as well as a few others as well. But it's always a debate that'll come back around, and it did come back quite a bit on the show. We talked about it with Kelsey. Let's play it. I was wondering what you thought about the whole thing with um, Democrats wanting to approve uh, student loan forgiveness. And, um, okay, if they want to forgive student loans, then why don't we take money from other countries or some of the money that we're putting into, like, the Democrats' campaigns and some of that stuff and putting that towards student loan forgiveness with some exceptions to, like, if you're just going to college and then you're doing nothing with your degree, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Student loan forgiveness is a slush fund, a gravy train for the uh, Democrat-run institutions. Basically, what student loan forgiveness would be is that the federal government, which has already cut deals with the institutions, would allow for students to have all or probably a portion of their student loan debt be relieved, which is just basically like a handout for the universities, which are all run by Democrats and are producing generations of future Democrats. So I'm strongly opposed to it. Uh, it doesn't work. Do I think it might happen one day? Yeah, yes, I do, sort of. And there's so many ways to not pay back your loans. There's lots of ways, lots of excuses you can have if you have them to delay it and defer them. And the interest rates on them are, are very low anyway. So there's not a ton of incentive to rush back your payment of the loans. But it is, I'll liken this to the example of whenever there is a credit, a tax credit or a handout or some way to make it so that it's easier for people to attend college. What ends up happening is, let's say the government is giving you some sort of credit for going to college. What happens is that the schools just raise their tuition 
So then the money doesn't go in the pockets of the citizens, particularly the lower income citizens. The vast majority of the money goes into the pockets of the institutions. So the institutions, as you know, are lousy with money. If you look at the private schools, they're basically becoming like hedge funds. Um, they have so much money that all gets invested and accumulates so much interest. Uh, Harvard already is at the level with given the in size of their endowment, they don't need to charge tuition at all. They could pay for everyone's school just based on the fact that they have so much coming in in terms of donations and ROI on their endowment, which is invested and accumulates money. So I'm strongly opposed to the student loan forgiveness. It is a, a handout to a lot of people who went to college and were promised that if you go to college, you're, uh, you will uh, come out of it with a respectable job, the respect of your community, maybe the company car, maybe you're on the fast track to country club membership. And then so many of us got out my age and younger and had nothing. I graduated college in 2008. Um, I got a lot of friends who graduated in 2009 which was the heart of the financial crisis. And I can't tell you how many people who had never been anything less than an A student at elite schools their whole lives were getting rejected from jobs, waiting tables and folding t-shirts. This is a common factor. And it was incredibly confusing to my generation that was told that the key to life is try to get good grades so you can get into college, try to do some community service, try to be in a couple clubs and play sports, do whatever it takes to get into college because that's what your life is dependent on it. And the colleges, the prices of the colleges in so many cases, particularly the private schools, went up and up and up and up. And it was hard to see the math. Like what's the math on uh, you know spending 40, 50 grand a year plus expenses on a degree? Are we gonna get that back? Are we ever gonna see it again? And the answer is literally never for so many people. So a lot of people want there to be some forgiveness from those people, but those people, First of all, they made their own decisions. I chose a public school for college partially because of the price. My parents would have got got it done between grants and loans and scholarships. And, you know, we would have figured out a way for me to go to private school for college if I wanted to. But it would have been a big stretch. But you didn't have to explain it to me. That it didn't make sense to accumulate a bunch of debt that I didn't have to. So I got into one of the best public schools in the country, UC Berkeley. And so I went there, but part of it was the money factor. And it wasn't like some sort of big dramatic point. It was an obvious point. Yet a lot of my peers chose more expensive schools because they didn't even think twice about it because of the loan system we're in. And that system simply allows for essentially the, this gravy train for the schools from the federal government via policies and via literal cash. And how do the, the professoriate and the boards of these institutions, how do they vote? How do they donate? They vote for Democrats and they donate to Democrats. And then the Democrats carve out more policies so that their schools get flooded with more cash. It's kind of sick the way it's done. So then people who are told that a college degree, a bachelor's degree greatly helps your employment prospects, barely helps them at all at this point, unless you're in those STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, math, which you know people barely tell you is more helpful for you to make money and be able to pay back these loans. So then people have a women and gender studies degrees from small East Coast universities. They have hundreds of thousands in debt and then they're making a they've got a job that, you know, starts in the twenty eight thousand dollar a year range and caps out caps out somewhere in the seventy thousand dollar a year range. And they're on a career path where they will n never pay down their debt. And this also means they can't get homes, delays home ownership. And still to this day, home ownership is basically a, go a gold rush. 
You know, I'm not Mr. Financial Guru, I will tell you that, but it was very smart that I figured out a way to get into a home because it just accumulates value just so rapidly at this point. It's one of the surest bets there is. And how do you do that if you've got obligations of two, $3,000 a month in some cases for your bachelor's degree that gets you nowhere? Insane. And what the Democrats would like to do is just give a handout to this class of people that are largely middle-class Democrats. Those are the people who would benefit most from student loan forgiveness. I got American parts. I got American faith. In America's heart. That's all for today. Thanks to producers Haley and Greg Eben and for all of you for telling 10,000 friends and family members about the broadcast. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm in love.